0: To as my whimsy takes me i'm caris ellison
1: and i'm sharon shu and today we are finally out of have his carcass and Hooray! yay at last um and starting our discussion on murder must advertise the next lord peter whimsy mystery in which lord peter finally gets himself a job a real <laughs> job we're so proud. Yeah, I know our our little our little stork is flying the nest. So yes, Karis, we wanted to start right at the beginning today, Chapter One, when death comes to Pim's publicity. Yes,
0: obviously we assume that most of our listeners, probably all of our listeners, have read this before, so they're aware. But this opening chapter is so fun because. It's one of those where you just get dumped into an environment. That environment is a very busy advertising agency, and the, everyone's in a flurry because they're getting a new copywriter. And like immediately, we get a lot of different personalities. We we do get a lot of different character names. Everyone's busy. Everyone's talking. Uh, there is just a tremendous amount of untagged dialogue, which is I think a great device for conveying the chaos
1: yeah yeah the chaos and the the energy like i just wrote energy in in big block letters in my margins here like just the flurry right i mean when you say we're dumped right in it's truly like the very first line is in medias rays like and by the way said mr hankin arresting miss rossiter she rose to go there's a new copywriter coming in today Oh, yes, Mr. Hankin. His name is Breeden. I can't tell you much about him. Mr. Pym engaged him himself. You will see that he is looked after. Yes, Mr. Hankin. He will have Mr. Dean's room. Yes, Mr. Hankin. You're like, who? What? Who, wh- who are these people? What's going on? And then Miss Rossiter tucks her notebook under her arm and trips out the door. And it's It's almost like it it feels very cinematic to me. Like there's this camera following behind her as she like pops into this room and then pops into the typist pool. And and all along the way, you're just kind of collecting people and names and little snippets of conversation. It's it's so fun.
0: Yeah, it would, you know, we were kind of as we talked through what we wanted to Say about this episode, like it really was in the context of something else, but we were talking about like how well this would film. Yeah. This book would film so well, which not all of the books I think would. And I think that there's a reason that Sayers doesn't have as many film adaptations mm-hmm. as, you know, some other mysteries, you know, like which we've mentioned before, where like Christy really lends herself to like being filmed and adapted and, you know, like having plots completely transported or, you know, like transplanted. And it's just like that doesn't happen in Venice. <laughs>
1: No, but you're right. It's like the sets the sets of Mad Men are right there if they haven't dismantled them. They're right there, just ready for, for this film adaptation.
0: Yeah, the, like there's a cinematic quality to the writing because in some of Sayers, we feel like we're very close into a point of view, right? Mm-hmm. I think for lots of Strong Poison in particular, we feel very tightly linked with a point of view, very tightly linked with like the internalization of the characters. And in this one, We really, it really feels like we're floating camera in a way that, you know, a little bit in Five Red Herrings, you know, some of the others but not in Have His Carcass very much and not in Strong Poison, you know, so like it's been a while since we've been this outside of the characters and yeah, it's it's refreshing Mm -hmm. to kind of like get that different type of atmosphere, I think. It is also just really fun.
1: It's so fun. Yeah, I... It's interesting to me, I was looking at Sayers's letters that she was writing around this time, and she mentions to somebody that the book she really wants to work on is Nine Tailors, um, the one that will come after this in publication order, and which draws, I think, a lot from the, the environment of her childhood. But she's like, uh, mm-hmm. basically, I'm under contract to give them a different book, um, like faster. So <laughs> let me just, you know, jot something down that I know a lot about. Um, and it's, it's just so funny to me that she was like, "Ah, oh, this is kind of my th- like a throwaway novel when I love it so much. <laughs> and I think the mystery is so accomplished it's, in it.
0: Yeah, it, it is. It's so good. And it is, yeah, like you said, the, the mystery is so accomplished because even in this, Sayers is just like, let's make it complicated. <laughs> Why not? Although we spent a long time in His Carcass. And part of that was because the mystery itself is so convoluted. And we talked about like, It didn't need to be this way. (laughs) It's like, you're not wrong, Mr. Chandler. It didn't need to be this way. (laughs) But there are very good reasons for this plot to be complex in the way that it is. And I think that that is another thing that kind of contributes to it feeling cinematic also. Mm. With Have His Carcass, there are a lot of different pieces and it feels like a struggle to put them together in a lot of ways. Whereas... This feels like a puzzle that, like, it's not that it's not complex, but it is so satisfying to see all the pieces click together. And it's possible to do that yourself in in a way. Yeah, yeah. like, this sentence is getting away from no, me. No, I,
1: I know what you mean. I feel like, because I feel like half his carcass, it's, you know, you start off a thread and then immediately it's just like snarl after snarl, right? Like, it, I just, I think of it as a big, like, tangled up piece of yarn that's kind of dropped into... The reader's lap, yeah. where it's like and then this and then this and then maybe bolsheviks and then maybe horses and then alibis and this and and i think for so much of murder must advertise it, you're not even sure of what exactly the mystery is there's i mean we'll get into this in in a second but there's sort of a straightforward like mm, was it an accidental death or was it murder but there's no clear motive. There's no clear reason for why it happened. There's not even, you know, other than like, oh, generally people kind of just like disliked him because he was, they, they found him to be sort of a sniveling brat. So so I think there's a way in which as, as a reader, at least for me, I just, I, I can be allowed to be carried along in sort of more of like the office hijinks and Peter learning the, the copywriting advertising trade and things like that without being like, okay, wait, like who said what and when? And where was you know how liquid was the blood and all of that?
0: Yeah. Okay. So I'm gonna throw a curveball at you because this is something that I just thought of and I have to say it before it's gone because the ADHD, right? But thinking of this as a progression from five red herrings, where you get all the puzzle pieces and it follows the rules, but it is unless you're Angela, it is so boring. (laughs) (laughs) And then to have his carcass, where the book is enthralling, but I don't care two pins about the mystery mm-hmm. <laughs> to this where it feels like those two elements work together and this is something that i was thinking about leverage is my favorite tv show and it has a lot of heists and a lot of mysteries but a lot of what it does is what a lot of classic mysteries do is that yeah, it follows the rules where it shows you all the clues, but the actual mystery is the way that the writers are obfuscating information and distracting the reader from information, so you are you're solving the mystery of the text as opposed to just solving mystery of the mystery right mm-hmm. I like that and so five red herrings does that, but it doesn't make it fun to solve the mystery of the text. you can solve the mystery of the mystery, but the fact that sayers leaves out that one vital what peter is looking for what detail peter noticed that's kind of like the one thing where <laughs> she's obfuscating in that way then in half his carcass the whole thing is being distracted from the mystery mm-hmm. whereas i feel like in murder must advertise those two elements are really balanced where you're solving the mystery mystery and the mystery of the narrative mm-hmm. i just feel like it's really balanced between those two things in a way that those like specifically five red herrings and have his carcass because we we did compare those a little bit. Yeah, they were both unevenly weighted, and then in Murder Must Advertise, they just fit perfectly balanced. I mean, I think that is one of the things that makes it feel very different.
1: I I like
0: that. <laughs> I've gotten completely away from
1: our owl No, that's fine. That's fine. I I like that. It's I was when you said you were throwing me a curveball, I was like, oh no, but now I'm like, oh yes. <laughs> I think that's a really great observation because I. I think one, that's why I like rereading this book so much, because there are all these things, I think in both Half His Carcass and in Five Red Herrings, there are a lot of clues that are pointed to as like, look, clue, the enterprising reader, you know, the astute reader will know what this clue is, or even like what the missing clue is, you know? Whereas in this book, this is the one that just feels most like a it could be a novel to me, right? Where you're just yeah. following along. And I think, I wonder if that's also due to that narrative distance that you pointed out a bit where we're not really close to Peter's point of view. So we're just following along. But there's so many things and I'm I'm sure we'll talk about this in our final episode after we go through the whodunit of on reread, you're like, oh my god, like, it was here (laughs) this whole time, just staring me in the face, you know, Um, and that is like, I, I think as someone who falls into the audience of I don't need to figure it all out before the narrative tells me there's something really, really pleasurable about like, you fooled me, but like, you still took me on such a great journey on the way. Like I didn't even mind being fooled because I got to just hang out with Mr. Ingleby and Mr. Hankin and Lord Peter.
0: <laughs> all the little bits of drama. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness, the office drama, the
1: office drama.
0: yeah, so like going back to death comes to Pim's like we're introduced to all these other characters and then kind of like in the middle of it, the new copywriter comes in. I love the uh, dumb old meeting in that first chapter mm-hmm. title. It was my it's a, such a good chapter title because we we learned that at this ad agency the previous week someone had fallen down a staircase in died and that's it's kind of this overshadowing event that everyone has started to move on from but it's still just like oh man you know that excitement happened Mm -hmm. and then uh, the new copywriter comes in and is filling out something with his name on it and he writes the word death there's this moment where everyone just like someone notices it and speaking of cinematic oh my goodness
1: i know it almost feels like it could be one of those silent films where like you know they just push in on the card that says death and everyone goes <gasps>
0: <laughs> but it it turns out that it's the the first name death and the new copywriter is death of Breeden," which the astute listener <laughs> will recognize as the the middle names of peter whimsy just that double meaning of, yes, there has been a death, mm-hmm. but there is also the person of death. There's a lot of little details that I'm sure we're we're going to revisit in this first chapter when we're talking about the end of the book, because I do feel like there's a nice... Um... Symmetry? Yes, thank you. <laughs> I'm just sitting here going like, the thing that means the two things. <laughs> but speaking of the office environment, you said kind of earlier... That Sayers was writing about something she knew a lot about. So, why don't you tell me and also our listeners a little bit more about that?
1: So, Sayers herself worked in an ad agency, Benson's ad agency, from 1922 to 1931. So, this was very soon after she finished her time at Oxford. And she worked there for nine years, so through to 1929. Um, so that really, that time period really spans some big happenings in her life, right? It, it spans the, the unhappy love affair with John Kornos. Um, it spans the time when she fell in with Bill White, the mechanic, and uh, became pregnant out of wedlock and gave birth. And I mean, it's interesting because in her biographies, nobody really seems to know like how she hit her pregnancy. Because she was working through that whole time. And it would have been... Similarly, I think, to in the book, There's the reason Peter is brought in undercover is because Mr. Pym is an old-fashioned gentleman and he's trying to figure out, like was this death in the office accidental? And is trying to do so without it making headlines, right? Maybe it's not true for Mr. Pym that all publicity is good publicity. (laughs) He's like, I don't want bad publicity attached to my name. But Sayers... You know I think somehow hid the fact that she was pregnant and then took a leave, gave birth, came back to work at Benson's, and it wasn't until nineteen twenty nine when she was really finding a lot of success with the Lord Peter books that she stopped working there, so spanning a decade of her life spanning an eventful decade for England too recovering from the war and yeah, I think she she was as far as we could tell, very successful at what she was doing, too. When she started in 1922, she she wrote a letter to her parents because, like, first she was brought on, like, oh, we're going to have this little trial period and, and see how you do. But she very quickly, at the end of that trial period, says, um... Benson's wants me to stay on, and Mr. Jane tells me I'm doing extraordinarily well, and that I have, quote, every quality which makes for success in advertising, end quote, and that very few people have those qualities. And then she goes on to say, like, well, he added that, you know, they can't really pay me more than four pounds a week right now, but, but, you know, probably I'll get a raise soon. So I'm like, ah, the more things change, the more they stay the same. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's altogether, I think it was, you know, the part of her career where she was really becoming her own woman and I think linked to, you know, as she's writing these detective novels and publishing them, right? Cause this is this letter to her parents, 19, June, 1922, whose body comes out in 1923. So this is all kind of happening at once The the decade of her rise to success and, and fame and financial security. Yay. She also, she was the one who created the Guinness is good for you slogan, which is my favorite little like tidbit about about Sayers. So yeah, it just it feels like so many scenes from this book feel like there's a they just they feel very real in a way where you're like, oh is she just kind of taking down like
0: notation? Well, like she doesn't in, does include an author's note being like they none of these are real people.
1: <laughs> By the way, I did not commit a slander.
0: <laughs> For legal reasons. For legal reasons
1: just here, here so I don't get fined.
0: <laughs> yeah, which, let's see, you said that she worked there until 1931. Okay, and then the copyright on this is 1933. So this is just a couple of years after she had left. So yeah, still, still obviously fresh in the memory.
1: Can you imagine being one of her old colleagues? And you see this book in the store? Like, what if, what if there was someone who was really nasty to her? Like, you know, like, I mean, you have to immediately buy the book and be like oh no am I in here (laughs) I think
0: you know when I think about Sayers and I think that I've said this before it's that I don't immediately think of her as one of those authors that really writes about place as a character Mm -hmm. but she really is you know like in pretty much all of her books the setting becomes very important like maybe not so much the ones where it's just kind of like generically in London but anytime the setting is part of the mystery I think she really takes the time to build the setting in. I know that that's something that we'll talk about a lot, you know, when Nine Tailors coming up. And it's fun to have it here where the majority of this book takes place in the in the office, in the ad agency. It's a very vibrantly built place. You get this this idea of this kind of like rambling, you know, like repurposed building that's been turned into offices. And it's, you know, it's a bit of a Warren.
1: <laughs> Could have used a map or a diagram for this one. <laughs> like whose office is by whom and where? <laughs>
0: Yeah, if we could get a map on the in-papers perhaps when I make a special edition.
1: <laughs> Someone please commission Caras to just edit and make special editions of Sayers' novels.
0: Oh, it would be so fun. They would all have special in-papers with maps and things. Just 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 imagine. Um we spend a lot of time in this ad agency and it's really well drawn, which is good since we spend most of the book there. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you were pointing out to me before we started recording that we really don't see Peter in his own environment, like a familiar environment that we've seen him in in the past until the very end of the book, right? That's like the only time we see him at home. Otherwise, we see him at work, we see him later on fall in with the. crowd of bright young things who just go from mansion to mansion and and have parties and such and and we do you know we we pay a little nice domestic visit to Parker uh and and Mary at at some point I think we'll probably talk about that next time but yeah most of the time Peter is at work and and in disguise right I know previously when we chatted about which book in the series we like to use to introduce new readers to the series. Like I mentioned, I like Murder Must Advertise because I think the mystery is really strong. I think it's a really strong novel. I I think there's also something about how it works really well as a standalone book. I think because it doesn't pick up on some of those fraught emotions that we love so much in the other books, right? Like you don't need to know Peter's whole prehistory because he's in disguise. I remember at the time you pointed out like, yeah, but you don't get to know Peter because he's in disguise. So is this is this the best one? But I, I suppose we should talk about why he's in disguise. That's true. Set out the actual mystery that we've been circling um, a bit. And in, yeah.
0: In, in fairness, the book circles quite a yeah. bit before it lets us in on what the mystery is.
1: Because again, like we said, there's basically... One of the copywriters falls down a metal staircase to his death. And this is a staircase where everyone's like, oh, yeah, you know, it's kind of a hazard, kind of a workplace hazard. And it's just ruled to be accidental. But there are just enough little details where Mr. Pym Feels nervous about it. So what does he do but get connected with one Lord Peter?
0: Well, he doesn't know, which I think is one of the fun details about the book is that Mr. Pym doesn't know.
1: Oh, that's right.
0: Yeah, he had a little callback to the very first Whimsy book. It's Rachel Levy, who is now Mrs. Arbuthnot. Mrs. Freddie. She does get married to Freddie, but she's an acquaintance of Mr. Pym. And he mentioned something to her about his concern that there might be something off because he's received a, a letter that says that there's something going on. Mm-hmm.
1: That's right.
0: But it doesn't give him any information. So he says something to her and she says, Oh, I know someone. And Peter decides not to go to him and be like, I am Lord Peter Wimsey, and I will solve it. for you." you know, he, <laughs> he kind of presents himself as a private detective. And so he's incognito, even with Mr. Pym. And I think that that's very funny of him.
1: Yes. Yeah, that's, you're right. You're right. There wouldn't be a mystery if Peter couldn't go himself, right? Like, I was trying to think of a universe in which he uses, like, a cattery agent or something. And I'm like, I think that's probably also Sayers felt that had been done.
0: Yeah, Strong Poison, we spend a lot of time with Ms. Murchison. Yeah, like
1: acting as a typist so and of course like that's part of the whole fun of this book is peter as kind of a fish out of water like you know oh jolly good like it's it's so fun to have a job when you don't need the money like he's just like oh to-do, to-do, <laughs> <da-da-da."> <laughs> but yeah so he's he comes in basically to to see if there's a there there like was this an accidental death and there are enough details like people say like victor dean basically crumples up at the top of the staircase like maybe as he was taking the first couple steps down and he was clutching a heavy book and basically had a death grip on it. So Peter's like, well, if you stumble, your immediate, you know, the natural human reaction is you drop whatever you're carrying and you kind of stick your arms out to try to catch yourself. So it's weird that he just fell like that. There is a contusion on his head because cause PIMS also engages in hostile architecture. There's like all these spikes on the uh, the banister so that the boys who are the errand boys for the firm can't like slide down
0: it. Like you just read the description of the staircase and you're just like, is this OSHA
1: compliance? Very much not. Like it should be taken out of there right away. Yeah. And people kind of keep referring to Victor Dean as like, he was sort of nasty. He would pass other people's copy or good ideas off as his own. Like you get, you get the sense that nobody was like, super fond of him but is it enough to amount to murder
0: it's a little bit farther along but there's some point where peter is gossiping to get information speaking of victor dean he's like why does miss meteor hate him and why does ingleby praise him with faint dams (laughs) (laughs) which is my favorite it's just like even the people who kind of were okay with him didn't think that he was a great person they were just relaxed about it (laughs) yeah praise him with faint dams (laughs)
1: So good. You could see why Sayers was good at advertising. Right. Yeah. I, as is my want, I pushed this book on one of my colleagues, and then I was like, Are you enjoying it? Are you enjoying it? (laughs) Please tell me we can still be friends. And she, like, her background is journalism, and she was like, Oh, I just really like this first chapter. You know, it's just like, She's like, I kept coming across these little phrases where I'm like, why don't we talk like this anymore? Yeah, I I mean, I think that's just also why these secondary characters are so well drawn in this book. Like they just, Mm -hmm. it really does sound like an office full of very quippy people who make their living through words and writing and and being clever. So Peter fits right in, obviously.
0: (laughs) Oh, he has a great time. He's, that's one of the other funny things about it. And this is something that we'll have to revisit when we get to discuss the solving of the mystery because that coincides with him coming up with this like big advertising. Yeah. But he is just so obviously having a ball.
1: Having so much fun. It's also, it's nice to see, right? We haven't seen him, like we didn't really see him having a great time in half his carcass because he was so, again, worried about Harriet. Like.
0: Yeah, he, other than getting to be near Harriet, I don't think he enjoyed that one at all.
1: Yeah. That's really the whole mystery that Peter initially comes in to take a look at. I think,
0: like, we should probably make the distinction that he's not there to solve a murder. Mm-mm. Like, Peter suspects that there's a murder, but he wasn't brought in by Pym because Pym thinks that this was anything other than an accidental death. It's because posthumously mm-hmm. there was a half-written letter that Victor Dean had started to Pym saying like, there's something wrong in the office. <laughs>
1: and then he inconveniently fell to his death
0: before he could spell it out. Yeah, so Pim is looking for some kind of um potential scandal. Mm-hmm. I don't think he has any idea that it's a potential murder. Yeah. Yeah,
1: cuz I think he was concerned that one Victor Dean was maybe getting ready to like blackmail him. Right. To say I could go to the press with there's something wrong here. If it was of scandalous nature, Peter, I think, is wondering, was Dean blackmailing somebody else in the office? Like, what is what is it that he found? And. Was it worth killing over, basically? And it's very convenient for Peter that he's put into Victor Dean's own office. So we do get a scene of him, like, rifling through the drawers and finding some notes, finding sort of a cryptic scrap of paper that has a bunch of dates and, like, letters on them. But yeah, in the meantime, he's also getting a crash course in how advertising as a whole works, how this ad agency works. You know, headlines come in these days, they get trimmed down and blah, blah, blah. Here are the big accounts. Here's how you have to finesse the account managers of, of these products and so forth. And I think it's also a really clever way to introduce us to other people in the office, like Miss Meatyard, who I, I have to believe is our Sayers stand in, right? They make a, a passing reference to how she attended Somerville, which was Sayers' college at Oxford, and then of course there are all these like the more old-fashioned men in the firm are like, oh, I don't know these <laughs> these women, these women copywriters, like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> like, just so grumbly about it.
0: They're not ladylike. It's
1: not ladylike to smoke and write headlines
0: <laughs> and write rude limericks. Rude limericks,
1: yes. And apparently she's like the best at the rude limericks.
0: Of course she is. There's
1: this little part where they're just kind of talking about like, oh, you know, so and so is good at like. He is surprisingly great at writing copy for corsets. Like Miss Meteor yeah. always has the best uh uh rude limericks.
0: And she can't write anything about women's goods. She
1: cannot, <laughs> yes, which which I love. So I imagine I imagine that, you know, if they had a uh an ale account, a Guinness account, it would have gone to her. But yeah, I think one thing that really caught my eye though, this this read through, and it comes in chapter four. Ingleby <laughs> notes that it looked like Peter had just been shinning up a pipe and he goes, oh I did shin down a pipe. only one pipe, rather a nice pipe it took my fancy because um, they're noting like it's a really hot day and all the windows and the skylights are open. So again Peter's kind of trying to get the lay of the land, you know he slowly also is trying to put together like who was where and when when Victor Dean fell down the stairs and it's just it's terrific fun to see him try to detect without being able to say, I am Lord Peter Winsay, I'm here to detect. But he notes to Ingleby, basically, he's like, I could I could do with a drink. And Ingleby's like, well, what about this thing that we advertise? It's one of Brotherhood's non-alcoholic refreshers, grinned Ingleby. Made from the finest Devon apples with a crisp, cool sparkle of champagne. Definitely anti-rheumatic and non-intoxicant. Doctors recommend it. Breeden shuddered. I think this is an awfully immoral job of ours. I do really think how we spoil the digestions of the public. <laughs> and then Ingleby responds, ah, yes, but think how earnestly we strive to put them right again. We undermine them with one hand and build them with the other. The vitamins we destroy in the canning we restore in revito. The roughage we remove from Peabody's Piper Parish we make up into a package and mark it as Bunbury's breakfast bran. The stomachs we ruin with Pompane we reline with Peplets to aid digestion. And by forcing the damn full public to pay twice over wants to have its food emasculated and wants to have the vitality put back again, we keep the wheels of commerce turning and give employment to thousands, including you and me. This wonderful world breed inside ecstatically. I think as 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 comical as that little bit is, I think it it really does pick up on Sayers' own suspicions of kind of like the mass consumption that was becoming A lot more common at this time you know you have the end of world war one and necessity might be the mother of invention but so is war right like the military industrial complex where you have to manufacture weapons at mass scale during war and then afterward now you have all these empty factories and men without shot like what do you do you you just create more products but you also have to create a demand for them there's an essay that was published in Creed or Chaos in 1949, but it's it comes from an, a talk that she was asked to give in 1941, I think in, in some kind of like religious context. But she, in the talk, which she titles The Other Six Deadly Sins. So she's kind of like, yeah, you know, the, the church is always just blathering on about lust and sure, but like, you know, how how often do we talk about greed? How often do we talk about envy or anger? She kind of really takes to task contemporary Christians at the time, I think. But if if you don't mind, I will read like a, a long section of this to you because I, I think it really ties in well with the very obvious disapproval she has in this book of, you know, advertising as a trade, of creating an appetite for things that people don't actually need, right? And, and later on, we'll see this linked to the dope trade in very obvious ways <laughs> so the, the metaphor it's like you know the analogy is right there basically i'm not making a stretch so she's talking about gluttony basically and she links she says the gluttonous consumption of manufactured goods had become before the war the prime civic virtue and why? Because the machines can produce cheaply only if they produce in vast quantities. Because unless the machines can produce cheaply, nobody can afford to keep them running. And because unless they are kept running, millions of citizens will be thrown out of employment and the community will starve. And I think the war she's referring to here is World War II, not World War One. So she's kind of saying like in the wake of World War One, we have this rise in production. And then during World War II, you know, all of this production then shifts back to wartime measures and rations and so forth. And she says, we need not stop now to go round and round the vicious circle of production and consumption. We need not remind ourselves of the furious barrage of advertisements by which people are flattered and frightened out of reasonable contentment into a greedy hankering after goods that they do not really need, nor point out for the thousandth time how every evil passion, snobbery, laziness, vanity, concupiscence, ignorance, greed, is appealed to in these campaigns nor how unassuming communities, described as backward countries, have these desires ruthlessly forced upon them by their neighbors in the effort to find an outlet for goods whose market is saturated. We must not take up too much time in pointing out how, as the necessity to sell goods in quantity becomes more desperate, the people's appreciation of quality is violently discouraged and suppressed. You must not buy goods that last too long, for production cannot be kept going unless the goods wear out or fall out of fashion, and so can be thrown away and replaced with others. If a man invents anything that would give lasting satisfaction, his invention must be bought up by the manufacturer so that it may never see the light of day. Nor must the worker be encouraged to take too much interest in the thing he makes. If he did, he might desire to make it as well as it can be made, and that would not pay. So Mm. she's really pointing at, you know, there's this like necessity of alienated labor. There's a necessity of, again, creating a demand for goods that you can satisfy but also making those goods at sort of increasingly planned obsolescence right like it's just going to fall apart so really when she was delivering this address she was saying you know we have another chance now that again manufacturing has turned to producing weapons after once once we're past this conflict we need to kind of get back to a kind of thriftiness and not allow ourselves to be carried away with having these sort of appetites stirred up in us which oh spoiler alert <laughs> i think we can pretty definitively say that all of all of these issues that she was pointing out in 1941 have have but accelerated
0: oh yeah when like you think about people talk a lot about the fast fashion industry you know there's a lot of emphasis on trying to fix things on the consumer end And I've seen more and more people pointing out that the consumers can only do so much because fast fashion clothes are going straight to landfills Mm -hmm. because it's cheaper for them to go ahead and produce them and throw them away than to produce less or produce better.
1: There have been some very good very good resources that we can link in show notes. I think The Atlantic recently published an article that's like, why does every sweater suck now?
0: Yeah. And I think probably a lot of people are familiar with like the Vimes Boots theory of economics Mm -hmm. from Terry Pratchett. And I saw someone recently make the observation that it is getting harder and harder, even if you are willing to spend the money to get that kind of quality that will last you because even things that are expensive are not built to that standard anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like mm, the solutions sure do need to be happening at a higher level than than a- yeah.
1: individually. Yeah. Well, and even people have pointed out like the know-how, right? The really good tailors, the really good cobblers, like that knowledge is also starting to get lost. Because again, if even the expensive things fall apart quickly like, yeah, you can pay to have them mended, but for the most part, it's like, oh well, I'll just go buy another, you know, sweater that'll fall apart in the wash like
0: yeah on the consumer end it's more cost effective to buy a new one Mm -hmm. than to put in the labor to
1: repair something that like isn't that great right
0: yeah and and it's it's very frustrating to you know not be able to do anything about it on an individual level we
1: need government regulations
0: yeah yeah because it needs to happen at the other end yeah. of the system. We live in capitalism, but we don't have to like it.
1: No, and we can imagine our way out of it, according to our, our queen, Ursula K. Le Guin. <laughs> We can and we must. Um, I, I just think it's, I mean, both sad, but also refreshing that people much smarter than us, much longer ago than us, were also saying the exact same things. I mean, I guess Sayers really kind of puts it on the consumer side, but... There's certainly a, I I think she's very clear, right, that there's sort of like a social, there's social pressure, there's business pressures there too, and that the change needs to be societal.
0: Because she is pointing out that companies are the ones, Mm -hmm. you know, taking things out of products and putting things into products and selling things to people twice. And then the ad agencies are there to convince them (laughs) (laughs) to buy them anyway. To
1: buy it all. And I think this will certainly we're going to need an entire episode just on like two pages of Gaudy Night when we get there, because there's there's a moment also there of like sort of mass mass produced consumables um, that I find very telling. (laughs) So coming back from all of that. uh, But no, I mean, I I bring that long rabbit trail up because I, I do think there are other moments in this book where that question or that larger existential pondering about advertising as a whole is, is going to come up. So I just, it's something that we can keep our eye on as we keep moving through the book.
0: Yeah. You know, I think it's one of those things that it falls in the category of <sighs>
1: Sayers is such a white liberal. Is that, <laughs> Hot is that <laughs>
0: I mean, like I say this as someone like I'm also very aware of how much I am a white liberal. One of my resolutions this year is to not buy chocolate candy because I'm just like slavery is bad and I don't want to support slavery. But also I really like Reese's peanut butter cups. And uh, and it just really makes me aware of how easy it is to be like, yeah, I hold these principles, but bitch wants chocolate.
1: (laughs) Like there, there are times when you see that phrase, there is no ethical consumption under capitalism, kind of like weaponized where you're like, oh, but Mm. it, you know, but it's not an excuse.
0: There is a limit to how much you can do. And I was talking to someone, you know, like this was again about fashion. she was like, I have trouble spending like $30 on a dress. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, that's understandable. You know, like you've been taught that that's a reasonable amount to pay for a dress Mm -hmm. and It's not your fault that the fashion industry is selling you dresses for $30, Mm -hmm. but it's really easy to be unaware of the fact that every article of clothing Mm -hmm. anyone, anywhere in the world wears, it's sewn by human hands. It's it's made by human hands. Yes, there are weaving machines. Yes, there are knitting machines, but like a machine can't construct the sweater. Like it can weave material Mm -hmm. for a sweater or, you know, like it can knit material, but it cannot put it together into a garment. Like, any garment that Mm -hmm. is more than a bedsheet toga, any basket, you know, like, any Easter basket Mm -hmm. that you pick up at the dollar store, that was made by human hands. Because, like, we're a lot of times in a lot of areas of Western culture, we're so separate from those things. And, like, it's really easy to be like, oh, yeah, everything's automated. Everything's made by machines. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's easy to lose sight of that. And then it's also easy to feel powerless about it. And it's just one of those things where and it's so easy to like think about it and acknowledge it and then be like well I can't do anything and I feel powerless about it so I'm just moving on with my life and I feel like we see Sayers go through that struggle a couple of times like she, we see her do it with classism we see her do it with elitism I think we see her do it with race a little bit where like she pokes at these concepts and she struggles with them a little bit but then at the end of the day she kind of defaults to what feels familiar mm-hmm. and it's just like well you know sometimes the status quo is really comfortable like when we get that's going to be a whole thing in busman's honeymoon that's a whole conversation um but yeah so like i look at my own white liberalism and i look at sarah's i'm just like i these two pictures are the same i
1: i do think i mean i think to give both you and her some credit i i do think a murder must advertise uh, I, I think in these later books, she comes a lot closer to recognizing that impulse and and also uh, thinking through the larger systems of like, you know, the, the powers that be always want you to let them be right. Like th- there's there is also a very um, there's there's a lot of ink spilled and a lot of money spent to make us all think that our individual choices don't matter. And certainly. You know, I think a lot about how collective, whether political action or labor action, like a lot of money goes into union busting. A lot of money goes into convincing people that their vote doesn't matter, right? Because if our individual votes didn't matter, there wouldn't be gerrymandering. There wouldn't be like intense campaigns of voter disenfranchisement, for example. So I I do think there is a recognition in this book of like the larger forces that collude. But also, yeah, I mean... Peter is in on the collusion, right? Like he's not, he's not, he's not forming the first copywriter's union at Pim's publicity.
0: <laughs> no, um, you know, he worries about it a little bit, but then he, you know, he kind of carries on.
1: Yeah. And I think as much as we've been enjoying, you know, sort of poking fun at him, having such a grand old time play acting at being a working man, like there is the aspect where at the end of the day, he goes home to his flat in Piccadilly and, you You know, I mean, he uses sort of a a mailbox at Charles's right, but like he's it's cosplay for him. Like we do need to acknowledge that, that he's ultimately it's it's I think we've already said this, but it's so much fun because he doesn't need the money.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It can be a game kind of in the same way that he talks in whose body, you know, he was just like, oh, like to me, like solving mysteries. It's every time it starts as a game and then it becomes like he's like. I realize that someone's going to get hurt. You know, someone Mm -hmm. is going to potentially die and I don't want to be responsible. And so I want out. But to Peter's credit, he never lets himself out.
1: Mm -hmm. So I guess the flip version of that with the I started off playing, you know, playing at being a copywriter is then the book gives him like he's he's the the genius behind. The greatest fictional advertising campaign ever.
0: <laughs> Which I don't think we have time left to get into it in this, no, in this episode, we'll but oh my it. goodness, it's being time. cigarettes. <laughs> 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 That's not something that aged. well. No. <laughs> but I mean, oh, I also meant, you know, like, cause there are things that I think that we should acknowledge, you know, like this is the book where there's, probably the the most egregious use of racial language
1: oh yeah
0: there are in the in the first chapter or is it the second chapter it's just like oh no oh oh yeah you just use those words i for and it catches me every time because you know they don't skip it in the audiobook like the audiobook just yeah. sticks to the text and it sure does catch me every time it's like oh you said that out loud
1: yeah I mean, there's one part where Peter, says, mm-hmm. right, like, I feel like in the past, sometimes we've been like, oh, well, you know, it's a minor character, or it's, it's someone who's, you know, it's maybe the text demonstrating somebody's racism, but I'm like, oh, yeah, nope, that's just, just with his whole chest saying these things.
0: Um, And it's not the only, uh, is it, there's, there's another one that I, and I think we pointed out at the time where Peter mm-hmm. also, like, he uses the, the, the word, and it's, you know, it's kind of like, I don't think that if, That if Sayers had an understanding of how offensive it is, because I'm fairly confident that we can say it was offensive even at the time, you know, Mm -hmm. even though it was commonly used. I think that probably she wouldn't have made that choice for Peter's, like, just for characterization. But that, you know, like, that lack of awareness also says something. It's one of those things where it's just, like, that balance between, like, judging people according to the context of their time, but also being, like, your lack of awareness in in your time is also... Mm -hmm. I I got to that part in the audiobook and I was just like, yeah, we should probably <laughs> you know, like it feels worthwhile to like mention that as a as an element. I don't know. I think that I appreciate that it's in the audiobook because I want to be reminded. You know, like mm. I want to I want mm. it to yeah. catch me off guard. I want it to surprise me and I want it to make me stop and think because we're huge fans of Sayer's. We always want to lionize Sayer's and it's good to remember that Sayer's was just as imperfect as as anyone else. anyone else, you know, she, yeah, yeah, like she was brilliant, but she was also a flawed human. And
1: yeah, I do think, you know, some of these, some of the more I th- egregious projects of not censorship, but you know, we're in a state is like, we're, we're trying to do the right thing and remove all the racism in doll, And you're like, you fundamentally can't without just changing the meaning of the text and And there's this aspect, too, where it starts to feel like wanting to have your cake and eat it, too, of like, okay, yeah, you know, people have a lot of nostalgia for certain properties. People have a lot of desire to read books that were meaningful to them in their childhood to their kids and and so forth. But like,
0: yeah, the, the eternal little house on the prairie. Yeah,
1: Little House on the Prairie. Even, I mean, like Chronicles of Narnia, which I love, but I'm like, whoa, did all the bad people have to be brown? Like, "Mm," you know, but I think it's, you know, so as a, personally, as a parent, it's like, okay, then I'm confronted with, do I not read these books to my child? Do I wait to introduce them at a point where we can have age appropriate conversations about the representation? Do I sort of let him have his own personal journey where, you know, we just read them as fun books when he's little and then later on I I'm like, okay, let's do, you know, <laughs> it's time for literary theory. Um <laughs> but but I, I don't want to be let off the hook on that either, you know? And and yeah, I I mean we don't have to get too far and I think different readers have to make their own choices but yeah 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 we're not gonna turns out we're never gonna let Dorothy L. Sayers off the hook
0: <laughs> no well and like it's one thing to let her off the hook when when we're just reading them on our own but like when mm-hmm. we, we're just like we're gonna discuss them like we can't just talk about the things that we like we
1: <laughs> yeah
0: we're you know we're committed to digging a little deeper and so like I feel like we wouldn't be doing it right And I think that that's really a way that, like, I personally benefit from this project
1: because,
0: you know, like, as we've, you know, like, we said, you know, when we started the Patreon, we're just like, we want to be clear that, like, this has always been a passion project. This was never a for-profit project. And, like, we just did it because we really wanted to. And but I really feel like it's really enriched my experience as a reader, like, reading this series and even, like, beyond because, um, you know, I did my I got my bachelor's degree, and then that was kind of it for me with academia
1: because you were smart <laughs> <laughs> because well, not for myriad reasons, yes,
0: yeah, because I had severe depression and severe undiagnosed a d h d and I was like deeply badly burnt out. you know that part of my brain had kind of atrophied just a little bit, and I'm like it's really great to have like just to feel that analytical literary area just open up and then also the way that it opens up everything because this is why literature is important <laughs> who knew
1: who knew you start reading one thing more closely and then you start reading everything more closely What? and this is you know critical thought is important that's it that's a slippery slope children <laughs> um so next time next time we can get into all the modernism and all the the little bits of character i really want us to talk at length about our favorite secondary characters in this book
0: yes and i'm really i'm looking forward to being lectured on modernism because like i feel like i know very little so i'm excited
1: oh, bless you you and all five of our listeners <laughs> we have more than five we have more than five we that do. are signed up for our we patreon do. but i don't know if there are more than five who might be interested in hearing me babble okay. on at length about modernism. <laughs>
0: Listeners, be sure to comment to let Sherry know how interested you are in (laughs) listening to (laughs) her talk about modernism, because I'm sure you all are. But yeah, so let's wrap up. And
1: so let's let's thank our patrons.
0: Yes. Yes. Speaking of our patrons.
1: Yes. So the following fine folks have joined at the five dollar and up Harriet Vane tier since our last recording. um, And as of this recording, which is taking place on January 14th. So thank you to Hannah W, KBA, Anna P, Brittany T, Kat W, Alba LR, Briar, and Sarah S. We really, really appreciate your support. You literally make this podcast happen. You, in, in a
0: very real way, you're making it possible. Paid, appreciate it so much, and I can I just continue to be surprised.
1: No, well, me too. Because
0: I was I was really expecting, like when I say I was expecting maybe three to five people to sign up for the Patreon. That was where my expectations were, <laughs> and I was going to be impressed by that. Yeah. And for there to be twice that or more, I'm just like you come
1: from They're so lovely yes and so now we're like oh no we have to we have to work out some uh, some perks yeah but we're just
0: like oh we in classic Karis and Sharon fashion we're just like oh we should have maybe planned a little bit more
1: done some planning huh what <laughs> we <Yeah>. organize
0: <laughs> oh my goodness um,
1: but yes I think the, the people have spoken we will we'll set up a, a patrons only audio feed through patreon for mm-hmm. the bonus content of bloopers yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of which we have many
0: <laughs> yes and some side conversations that we might you know trim out of episodes for for time but yes. um if you want to hear us talk piffle
1: <laughs> yeah all our piffling and then also you and I will take turns um sort of doing quick recordings of like this is what we've read recently that we recommend and yeah. we'll probably swap out every other month like you'll do one I'll do one that kind of thing um so those would be just quick and and Probably very unedited and dropped in. Um, But yeah, if you are not yet a part of our Patreon and would like all of, you know, more of our dulcet tones in your ears, uh, check us out at patreon.com slash me.
0: Probably on special occasions we'll do, we'll offer personalized, you know, like maybe. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll offer the opportunity for, for personalized book recommendations because we both have read a lot of books.
1: Yes. And there's nothing we love more than pushing them onto other people. I love
0: recommending books so much. People be like, I need book recommendations. I'm just like, this is my favorite game.
1: You're just like Kool-Aid Man-In. <laughs> yes, challenge accepted.
0: Yes, so we love book recommendations. We, we will be excited for opportunities yeah. to hand those out.
1: Yeah. Otherwise, join us back in a month uh, for more of Murder Must Advertise. And I yes. think next time we get to check in on inspector parker and mrs lady mary parker (laughs) i can't wait i
0: know i'm so excited thank you for joining us for this episode of as my whimsy takes me for more episodes show notes and transcripts you can find them on our website at asmywhimsytakesme.com that's whimsy spelled w-i-m-s-e-y
1: we are also on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as at whimsy pod. And our aforementioned Patreon is patreon.com slash as takes me. Our logo is by Gabby Vicioso and our theme music was composed and recorded by Sarah Mahalik.
0: If you've enjoyed this episode, uh, please give us a five star rating and a review on Apple podcasts or on your podcatcher of choice. And please tell all your friends who enjoy Dorothy L. Sayers as much as we do.
1: See you next time for more Talking Piffle.
0: Um, But yes, I have to go uh, meet someone in a parking lot and buy a a teacup off them.
1: Okay, don't get murdered. I won't get murdered.
0: Surely people who sell teacups aren't going to murder